It is the Chicago First United Audio Podcast, your Chicago scene salvation, featuring interviews with the premier talent and tastemakers in the Chicago music community. My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast every week at DynastyPodcast.com. This week, an interview with James Van Ostel, recorded at Challengers Comics and Conversation for the We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, an oral history of Q101 book release. Here's how that sounds. Haima Black here at Challengers Comics and Conversation. I'm sitting here with James Van Ostel, author of We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, an Oral History of Q101. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, Haima. Thanks for uh, doing this. Thank you for making time. Uh, we're here at the book release party at Challengers, and so I know in a little bit you're going to be like, what, talking about the book, reading some excerpts, or what's the plan? <laughs> there is no plan. It's a cocktail party. We're mingling. Uh, I'm not sitting behind a table. I'm just hanging out. So if someone wants me to read stuff out loud, I'd, I'd be happy to do it. Well, let's talk about the book. Like, What was the kind of motivation in in tackling this project? Like, where did the idea come from, and at what point did it go from being an idea to you thinking, you know what, this is actually something that could really happen? It it all happened really quick. Um, It was announced last June that Q101 was sold to Merlin Media, and whenever something like this happens, it's a guarantee that the station will be, the the format will be changed. It'll go away. Uh, So before the day was over, I thought, well, shit, I've always wanted to tell a radio story. The timing couldn't be better. I'm just going to go ahead. I went on Kickstarter. I put together the pledge levels, and I launched a Kickstarter project to write this book before midnight that night. So I I didn't give myself time to think. And once it was live, I realized, oh, people may actually want to read this. Holy crap, I'm going to have to write this. Yeah, sometimes you got to act on those ideas before you talk yourself out of it. So the way that this is written, it's really interesting because it's not a straightforward um, historical retelling in the way that some people might be expecting. It's very much in the words of those who lived it. You've got excerpts from just a wealth of talent and, uh, you know, people who are involved in the station in various capacities. What made you want to tell it in that way where it's in everybody's own words? Uh, More than anything, I love the format. I'm just a fan of books that are written this way in that oral history style. And and one example I, I bring up a lot, and if you've heard me say this somewhere else, forgive me, but I've always loved this book called Live from New York, it's the Saturday Night Live oral history. It was really my first exposure to that kind of writing where the narrative just flowed. It sounded like all these guys were in the same room together, and you didn't have to think too much. It just The stories just kind of leapt off the page, and I was just a fan of that, and that's the book I wanted to write. And furthermore, for a book like this, knowing that the idea of Q101 is kind of niche from a broad-based perspective. I figured this would make it more readable to people who maybe didn't care as much or didn't know as much about the radio station. Well, in telling it like this, you have largely taken yourself out of the storytelling. It's, by and large, in everyone else's words, except for yours, with a few exceptions. What made you want to take yourself out of the storytelling? And were there some stories that you thought, oh, man, I wish I could find a place for this, because from where I'm standing, I have a great like anecdote to tell or kind of memory of this? This is something I wrestled with. I really, I didn't know how to take on the issue of myself in this story. It was a really awkward thing, and I went through different permutations of the manuscript. I didn't really know how to do it. Then I felt like, you know what, if I do anything besides baseline inclusion of myself, I'm going to look like I'm forcing myself in there. Regardless of whether or not that's the case, I figured to tell the story and have people focused on the story and not... When I forced myself in there, I, I just needed to take myself out. It, it seemed like the best way to do it. As far as stories I, I left out about me and my experiences, I'm sure there's stuff. But honestly, I talked to 
75, 80 different people, yourself included, um, who had really interesting things to say. And I, I'm not convinced anything I could add would change things for the better. I, I have some wonderful stories, some great recollections. I, I think it stands on its own without my meddling. We'll talk about the process of going through and talking to 75 or 80 different people in what I'm sure was a very condensed period of time and was probably like your largest undertaking of interviews in one kind of uh, a block. I mean, what was that whole experience like checking in with almost 100 people that you previously worked with or knew of? It was really hard. It was because it's not just doing the interviews. It's the scheduling of the interviews. And then, oh, wait, someone, so, someone says they can't do this interview. I have to reschedule it. It's a lot of just juggling calendars and schedules. So just getting things on the books was a huge pain in the ass. Then there's the recording of the interviews, which could be 30 minutes, could be 90 minutes, depending on who I'm talking to. The worst part, the hardest part, hands down, was the transcribing. As you know, um, transcribing an interview, there, there's no shortcut. Yeah. You're going word by word, rewind, and I guess I was spoiled as a kid being able to rewind a cassette recorder, you just move back and forth with your index finger and your middle finger to get to the part in the tape. It's a lot harder when you do it digitally to find that spot, and it took hours. I probably worked four hours a, a night, seven days a week, outside of my day job, just trying to get caught up on transcripts or transcribing. Let's talk about like kind of looking at the media side of things then versus now, because if you look at the story of Q101, um, you know, it, a lot of times it was larger than life. The personalities, the promotions, occasionally even the music, so though that took us back seat sometimes. Do you think media could still be like that in Chicago in 2013 almost, you know, like radio or otherwise? Uh, that's the big question. I, I don't think music radio is in a terribly good spot right now. I don't think it can recreate what it's done. I mean, look at, we're sitting here at Challengers Comics. You've been hosting your podcast for years. You're in touch with the local music community. I've been off radio for a year and a half. I haven't been full-time on the radio for like five or six years. I podcast. I talked this morning before I came here, I talked to artists in Denmark and London for my podcast. The rules have changed. And what radio used to be able to do is now being done elsewhere. I think talk radio will survive and do great sports radio, news radio. I don't think music radio can recapture it. And it's not me being cynical. I'm just I'm trying to look at this from a very objective platform. I, I don't know that, that that fire can be rekindled. Well, yeah, because, I mean, even if you look at, I think, what's the most comparable component of that in 2012, it's like maybe you could say, like, there's a lot of bloggers and a lot of, like, hyper-local media personalities on Twitter, but we're not all working under the same roof. We're not all working for the same company. We're not all being, like, it's us against the zone. It's us against Rock 103.5. Right. And you know what's so interesting about media? I've found, since I left radio, I am more plugged in with local media folks than I was when I worked in media. I, social media has become this remarkable equalizer. Like, there, there have always been silos between radio and television and print. And suddenly, through Twitter specifically, I've become friendly with people who work in these organizations I thought were locked off to me, like I couldn't get to. And I'm communicating with people, having fun. And that was, that was forbidden in traditional media. And it's been a wonderful thing. But, yeah, we're all existing outside the same walls and framework. And I, I think we're all unconsciously carving a new path together. Reading the book and, you know, taking myself out of it because, I, you know, I worked there as well. But just reading the book from an outsider's perspective, it all sounds very fantastic. It sounds very romanticized. Do you think that that's people looking back with kind of rose-colored glasses, kind of nostalgizing it and glorifying it? Or was it really that fantastic at times? It's a great question because, I mean, we all had shitty days at work. I had bad days at work. I had days where I cursed my boss, cursed my gig, cursed the hours I worked. 
I, I think one of the cases I make very early on in the book is that the idea of Q101 was oftentimes greater than what the station was. And I think looking back, we're all aware it was a pretty sweet situation. I mean, I had a pretty great gig going for myself. I had a Sunday night show where I could play whatever the fuck I wanted to. That doesn't happen in radio. I did a night show where I could mess around and have fun. I got to interview bands. It wasn't always easy. It wasn't always fun. But I knew that I had a good thing going. And now that people are detached and distanced from it, I, th I think it, there's a greater sense of clarity. Like, oh, that really was cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard with anything in life. When you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to have that perspective of what the truth really is. But, yeah, it was, it was a sweet gig. So there may be some romanticizing, but in all honesty, there were some glory days there. It, 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 they can't be recaptured, and they were kind of kick-ass. No, I mean, I agree, and I felt that way, but I thought it, you know, it's worth looking at it objectively because sometimes people talk about the good old days and they're not always the good old days. So uh, something else that stood out to me reading the book is there's actually some really gut punch moments. What I think really got me as one of the earlier gut punch moments in the book is a story of Brooke Hunter meeting Courtney Love at Q101's Twisted, you know, the annual Christmas uh, concert festival we did. And Courtney doesn't autograph for her and she writes something like, Brooke, please protect me. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, holy shit. Like, what were some of the gut punch moments that you got that maybe even didn't make it in the book or in reading and writing it that you kind of, you know, took away with that? Well, gut punch sounds really extreme. I, you know, I had lots of fun memories and artist interactions. Like, I'll never forget, and this isn't a gut punch, maybe, maybe it's not even worth telling, but I remember interviewing No Doubt when they first came around on Tragic Kingdom. They did like an 18 and over show at Metro at like 11 o'clock at night on like a Tuesday night. Um, and back then, radio interviews were done almost in secret. Like we'd have these opportunities with artists, but they'd never air. Like the people who run radio will book these interviews because they don't want to miss the opportunity, but they don't actually run them. So I was that guy. Whenever a touring band came to town, I would go into a studio with a band, record a 20-minute interview that never saw the light of day. And that's what I did with No Doubt. It never aired. Um, but it was a really good interview, and they were really fun and really cool. It was uh, Gwen Stefani and, and Tom Dumont. The next time they came to town... They were obviously much bigger. It, it, Spiderwebs was exploding, and Just a Girl had already exploded. It was a big deal. And I, I made it backstage, and Gwen Stefani saw me from across the room, and she was so excited, she ran across the room and kissed me on the cheek. Not a gut-punch moment, but I remember I was with a, a friend of mine who absolutely lusted after Gwen Stefani, and he, he looked like he saw a ghost. Like, <laughs> like he, he couldn't believe that just happened. In fact, telling the story, I can't believe it happened. But as far as gut-punch stories go, I don't know. I mean, my biggest gut-punch story was honestly laid bare in, in my book. It was about finding out I was going to be fired from an email sent by a listener. That sucked. Something that we can both relate to personally is the Chicago music show, local 101, local music showcase, whatever it was called and whatever kind of, you know, state it was in, it was always kind of like the redheaded stepchild of the station, just buried on Sunday nights, never thought about. And in both of the runs that we worked on, you hosted, I produced uh, in the run after you. I mean, it's not like it didn't contribute to the station. Your show, you know, uh, instrumental in bands like Kill Hannah, Local H, Fruit Assault, we had the era with like Rise Against, Fall Out Boy, Disturbed. And yet, with all those contributions, no one really cared. Why do you think that that's, that show was kind of as kind of tossed aside by and large by management or those in charge as it was? You know, it'd be easy to say that Q101 management was exclusively dismissive of that type of programming, but that's true across the country. I mean, the simple answer is commerce. There's no direct 
correlation between a show like that and money and ratings. Uh, and that's the easiest thing for program directors to understand. If I play this record this many times a week, it will give me X audience share. The, this Our show, that was, I mean, the Wild West, where people like me and Payne would just pick songs for airplay that the program directors had no knowledge of, it scared them. And it, it was always put on the air for imaging and for branding, but never for anything else. They knew that they had to have a show like that, but they just didn't want to think about it. it uh, but, but what you mentioned is very true. I mean, big bands evolved out of that show. But if I'm a program director looking at that, I'm thinking, okay, that's one every eight to 12 months, statistically speaking. Who cares? I worked at Q101 for a, a decent amount of time. You did as well. And even though I experienced a lot of these changes firsthand, reading the book, I was still struck by how many identity crises yeah. Q101 went through. I mean, this was a station that at different points in its run was playing Tori Amos and then Mudvayne. Right. You know, like, right. why do you think that it went through so many evolutions? And to answer a question you didn't ask, that, that to me is the reason for its downfall. It wasn't the fact that a new company came in and bought it. It was the fact that they destroyed their brand. It was this horribly inconsistent product because it went from – God by Tori Amos one year to, you know, Lay Lady Lay by Ministry the next to, you know, not falling by Mudvayne. Who is that listener? <laughs> I, 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 they were the architects of their own demise. They made a lot of bad moves. I don't even know what the question you asked was, but um, why was it so inconsistent and why did it make so many changes? Because of new, new people coming in. I, I, we saw that especially in the 21st century, and it's one of the things I mentioned in the book, a lot of new program directors. Every time a new program director comes in, he or she wants to be the one to save the station. It's like this unwinnable task. It's like the Hunger Games. Yeah. You know, everyone in theory has a chance to win, but you know the odds are strongly against you. They're, they're not ever in your favor when you're programming Q101. So everyone thought, I'm going to be the one to win this. I'm going to get the bow and arrow. I'm going to get this shit done. And they never did. So they take it in one direction. You had one guy putting Hanson Records on the air. You had another person putting on the worst morning show in the history of Chicago radio. It was horribly inconsistent. It was all because of new management trying to mark their territory. No, I mean, I, Chris and I always felt like the only reason we lasted as long as we did is because, kind of like touching on what you said a second ago, no one was even thinking about Sunday nights. Right. So they weren't even thinking about us. And literally, James, this is true. When Q101 got bought by Merlin Media, when they fired everybody, they kept a couple of us on who were, like, very low on the ladder, like part-timers, board ops, just to help the new staff uh, transition in the studio, um, help them learn the equipment. We knew it was going to be a very limited thing. I asked one of the programming people why I was still there, and the answer, this is true, the answer I got was, oh, they forgot to fire you. Wow. I, I could have stayed probably and still be at 101.1 right now if I hadn't said anything. They forgot to fire you. But yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Like, oh, you're still here. Yeah. Wow. That, whoops. You're, you're like the dude in office space. I know. That's, <laughs> I've been told that by, yeah. Um, you know, kind of closing it out, I want to ask, because by and large you have taken yourself out of the book, and I think we touched on this a little bit, but are there any stories that you have with Q101, like any great memories you look back on that maybe – didn't get told one way or another in this telling in the book. No, I think I would have told them if that were the case. I mean, for me, the greatest memories I, I found, especially in writing this book, come from interacting with the people I worked with. I worked with a profoundly creative group of people. I just people who could make me laugh without even trying. Uh, just some remarkably funny 
cool, intelligent people. And you know, going back to that idea of you know, romanticizing the past, when I look back, I'm like, holy fuck, I don't think I've ever worked with a group as creative as that over the time I worked there. Like, how lucky was I? So for me, one of the greatest memories of Q101 was writing this book and reconnecting with all these people and realizing, wow, we all shared this great moment together. And how, how fortunate is it that I can still have these relationships? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the book is called We Appreciate Your Enthusiasm, an Oral History of Q101. It's told by the people who lived it, who were involved. Uh, what's the best place for people to be able to pick up the book online, purchase it, and, and keep up with everything you have happening with everything you're doing? Uh, best place is Amazon.com for the paperback version. There are ebooks available on Kindle, Nook, and the Apple iBookstore. Uh, or if you want to jump into a wormhole and come to Challengers, uh, they're available for sale here in the brick-and-mortar store. Great. Uh, JVL, thanks so much, man, for taking time for the podcast. And really great to reconnect with you and, and to have been included in the book. It's very, very cool. So thanks. Thank you, Jaime. This has been the Chicago First United Audio Podcast, your Chicago scene salvation. Thanks to James Van Ostel for being on the show this week and Challengers Comics and Conversation for hosting the interview. You can follow the Dynasty Podcast Network through all social and digital media channels at DynastyPodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Jaima Black, Dynasty Descend.